Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about the ambo in your church. What is an ambo? What should it look like? How is it different from a lectern or a podium? I'm very impressed that we are able to talk about 30 minutes on this one subject. So without further ado, episode 22 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Ambo, ambo, ambo. What a crazy word. Yeah, what does it mean? Is it the same thing as podium, rostrum? An ambo is a type of lectern, but it's not the same as a lectern. So what's the difference? That's what I say. What's the difference? Yeah, that's what most people say. But the truth of the matter is in all the sacramental things of the church, the church decides that certain things are so important to reveal the sacramental realities that they have to be specific and have a particular use. And the ambo is the place from which the scriptures are proclaimed. And lectern is a thing where you can say we're having a pancake supper uh, next Friday. For the you could say Christmas. that about a podium, though, too, right? You're at the podium. Yeah, podium is just more of the generic category of tall things on which papers and books rest. And oftentimes, are there, there one of each on an altar, or is there any any information about that? Is there should be an ambo and a lectern, or just an ambo? Or? Well, the church only prescribes an ambo. And it says it shouldn't be used for announcements or simple lectern may be used for that. And so what, you know, they're magnifying the word. That's what an ambo does is it's not just a place that's convenient for holding the lectionary when the scriptures are proclaimed or the book of the gospels, but it's a thing that tells the viewer, not just the listener, but it'd be the same person. They can hear the word proclaimed, but they also see how important the word proclaimed is because the thing they're using to proclaim the word is so beautiful, so rich in such a right place that it says, this isn't just any old book stand. This is the book stand of the Word of God from which uh, Christ speaks to his people. And the, spo- yeah, if the spoken the, word, right? And the written word, I guess. But the spoken word. Well, the well, word be sp- proclaimed. Right. Yeah, especially the, uh, you know, if the reality is, is that it is the word that is being proclaimed. And in some instances, the word who is speaking, you know, in the person of the, uh, the priest or the deacon at the proclamation of the gospel. All right, well, how would you know that unless you could... You could see, and in some ways here too, you could see its uh, excellence in the design, perhaps of the ambo. You know, uh, just a, a music stand or a podium or something like that doesn't doesn't say that. And so, you know, we encounter these unseen things, unheard things through uh, audible, sensible ways. Right. So think of a credence table in a church. It's a table, and it's just that place where you store things and still until it's time to bring to the altar, which is also a table, but it's a glorified, extraordinary eschatological table that signifies Christ. So they should look different, those two tables. Well, they should. And have you, I've never been to Mass where the, uh, uh, those two tables, Dennis, do you want to say anything about The table of the Word and the table of the Eucharist? Well, the the credence table and the the altar table, uh, which we've been through this before. The altar is a table, but it's not just a table. It's a sacrificial table. But I've been to Mass a couple times. And I've, well, in all the times I've been to Mass, I've never You've seen a priest. You've only been to Mass a couple of times. <laughs> I'm, I'm just seeing if you're listening. I've never <laughs> seen a priest be confused about which one 
masses to be celebrated on. Everybody always knows to go to this one, which is the altar. And he knows that because, not because the altar server told him perhaps. But because, because the grievance table is always in the back. Well, it's location, it's decoration, it's size, it's materials. All of those things manifest what it is internally. And this is the same principle that we're applying here to, say, an ambo versus a podium. It's in its design, in its ornament, in its beauty, in its size, in its permanence, and all of these things that express that what is going on here is more than just the announcement of the Pancake Supper. Right. When you read the documents of the church about the altar... They don't just say it's a table. They say it's Christ standing in the middle of his people. So imagine some of these old paintings you see of Christ in glory and the angels are in circles around him. And he's in the middle of this heavenly array. Well, the altar is the architectural rendition of that. And when I did some research on this recently, the general instruction of the Roman Missal made this claim. When the sacred scriptures are read in church, God himself speaks to his people and Christ present in his word proclaims the gospel. So we have this high theology of what proclaiming the scriptures in the liturgical setting is. It's not just a classroom that you deal with until you wait around to get the Eucharist. It's Christ showing up sacramentally through the word that's contained in the written record, but then the Holy Spirit makes that word active and present through the proclamation of the minister into the room, and so that it affects us. It affects what it signifies. So it should be perceivable. There should be a perceivable importance to you know, this, the appearance of the ambo so much so that one would see it and they would say, wow, that must be really important or whatever happens there must be pretty important. Seems, Absolutely. seems pretty natural to me. You know, when you drive through a state capitol or you go to Washington, D.C., you know what the important buildings are. You're driving around and you see all the lawyers' offices and everything in a state capitol. And then there's this big building with a dome, probably marble and columns and all that. And you say, well, that must be the capitol building. It just reveals itself by the choices the architect made. And the same thing happens on the smaller scale in the ambo. Because the proclamation of Scripture is God speaking in the world directly to us, uh, sacramentally perceived and presented. I'm often reminded, maybe I shouldn't be, but I'm often reminded of this uh, image in the book of Revelation where uh, John meets the angel and the angel has him roll up the scroll and to eat it. And, and it's sweet. To uh, initially. Yeah, but this, I'm not familiar the, with that verse, but that sounds awesome. Oh yeah, it's sweet in his mouth, but it turns a sour, sour. in his stomach uh, huh. because of the demands of the word is generally how it's interpreted. But this reminds me of what, what the Constitution on the Sacred Liturgy and other documents, in fact, say now, general instruction, for example, is that uh, Christians are nourished from this twofold table, one of the altar and one of the word. And just being nourished by the word evokes this uh, heavenly image of me of just literally uh, eating the substance of the word. And that's what another, this design of the ambo gets to is that the word that proclaims here is meaty, it's substantial, it's, uh, it's logos, it's logical. Um, and so, but this all wasn't always the case uh, that, that, that the ambo would, would uh, say this very thing. Or well, there wasn't an ambo at all for many centuries. Right. So when, when did it come into appearance, I guess. Well, it was a 20th century rediscovery of something that existed in the first 10 to 12 centuries of the church. So in the early days of the church, the proclamation of scripture was in the vernacular typically and was proclaimed to the people. And then the claim is made that in the Middle Ages, you know, as society declines and the mass gets reserved to the monasteries, you have all these monks living together and they each say their own mass every day. So they just took the scripture readings on the altar and basically read it to themselves because they were the only ones there, one person at a time. And then that there became... There was no need. Sure, there's no one right. to proclaim it to, so there's no need to proclaim it. 
And uh, so the logic was that that became the norm, even though that wasn't the case anymore, that priests were secretly celebrating Mass in the monasteries or privately celebrating the monasteries. So the norms for the private Mass, it's claimed, became the norms, even though we were had a church with 2,000 people in it. So if anybody's old enough to remember the extraordinary form, as it's called now, or as yeah, been Kevin, yeah, Kevin, yeah, would Kevin know Thornton it. is always. You remember there. that, Kevin? Yeah, <laughs> be quiet over there. He was around. He was definitely around for that. The priest would say, Matt, say to read the scriptures on the altar quietly, and people in the pews wouldn't hear. And then they got permission later for the the readings to be reread in the vernacular. But it wasn't actually part of the liturgical action. It was just a a concession to, so that people in the pews might hear the readings. And then they said, you know what? We shouldn't just be tolerating uh, this little quiet recitation of the of the Holy Scripture, but they should be proclaimed to the people. And then the ambo as a place of proclamation was rediscovered. A lot of old churches had pulpits in them, but pulpits were for preaching primarily. Unless yeah, that they, was that was going to be my next question. Was there anything like this, um, you know, a precursor to the ambo that already existed either in Greek or Roman culture or even beyond that in, into the old temple? Was you know where do where did they draw from to get the idea that you should be speaking from this, you know, this image of something that is indicative of what you're speaking? Well, at one level, it's just obvious. You know, you hop up on a milk crate if you're going to give a speech or whatever's around. You know, you want to be higher, you want to be seen, you want to be heard. So that became a highly developed tradition, both both in the Greek world, but particularly in the synagogue tradition. Uh, there was something called a, a bema that sometimes is translated like Father Bema, like Father Bema, except yeah. it's B E M A. Okay. And that shows up in a lot of the early churches. It's just a raised platform for the proclamation of Scripture. And you, there are a few scriptural references of people going up on these platforms in the Old Testament. Um, and also some some references in the early church, John Chrysostom going up to the pulpit to preach, I mean, excuse me, going to the ambo to proclaim the Scriptures and, and to preach. So on one hand, it's just an obvious thing to do. But then the obvious thing, like a lot of Catholic things, you take the nature of the world, you want to be seen and heard, rise up so people can see you and hear you. But then it gets this sacramental overlay that reveals the importance of going up that to that height. Now, um, just from some of my theater background and things that I've heard from people in the past, um, I think there are some instances where some people say that when Jesus would preach, he'd actually preach lower, just because the sound would the sound would elevate in the old theater, old Greek theaters that when they would they'd build their theaters on the side of a mountain and the stage would be low so that the sound could elevate. Um, Obviously, that's a lot different than what we're talking about. But well, the area, the mount where they think the you know the mount of the Beatitudes was was like that. It was a kind of a natural, uh, semicircular hill, and Christ would be at the bottom, and the sound would carry up. Um, and maybe Christ uh, chose that. But the the scripture reference that's often used for uh, Ambo is when the um, angel is at the tomb. So the Mary Magdalene and the other women come with the myrrh. And they come to the tomb and it's open and the angel's sitting on the rock that's been rolled away and says, go in there and see that the tomb is empty and then go out and tell everybody. So he was up high on this rock to proclaim the first time that it's ever been proclaimed by anyone, you know, he's risen, he's not here. So he was up high and proclaiming it from this sort of high raised platform. This kind of goes into that category of like, you know, you, you enter you enter a church and you kind of see these things and you're like, oh yeah, that's where the ambo is, you know, this is kind of normal, but... So much, and, and I'm continually amazed at how much thought goes into, you know, designing these things and, and what goes behind just, just an ambo. You know, the fact that we're doing a whole podcast episode just on an ambo just goes to show that how, how much thought and, you know, uh, revelation comes to us 
for these aspects of liturgy. And I think that that speaks a lot to the church and how amazing and how deep and rich the church is. It speaks to me uh, along those same lines is that, I mean, the church really understands human nature and this, uh, the fact that we encounter unseen sentiments, uh, thoughts, realities through visible uh, matter sensible matter is a very human thing this is not a weird catholic thing that we have going on that we happen to be sacramental type of people we're human things and the church uh understands humanity what, what's this line from gaudium at spes about jesus came not simply to reveal uh god to man but man to himself and he teaches us what it's like to be human beings well and jesus is most substantially and uh, uh so truly tangibly real in the liturgy it should make sense that the liturgy is kind of this school of of it's not teaching us how to be angels, it's, it's teaching us to fulfill our humanity. So she recognizes, you know, the the sensate uh, nature that that we're ensouled bodies, and she uses these things in the liturgy. And she even she adds on to this human meaning, meaning though, this uh, supernatural meaning. For example, like uh, going up to the mountain, uh, or like uh, the the angel announcing the the good news from the rock. And so this, it's very consistent what we do in the liturgy with our with our human nature. And you could imagine saying, "Man, I wish Jesus were here. I would. I'd like to ask him. I wish Jesus could talk to me. You know." But we have that every day in the life of the mm-hmm. church. Remember, you know, a few episodes back, Lambert Baudouin was talking about how all of the authority of Christ, who is now at the right hand of the Father, is actuated in the church, is given to the church. And so there's something that we kind of want this direct contact with God, but for whatever reason, for our nature, we have it mediated through sacramental things. So. You know, the church says, when the scriptures are proclaimed, Christ himself speaks to his people. And I don't think that people realize the importance of hearing the word of God. Yeah, just to uh, build on that point, and in relation to the Ambo, think about what the church says when, um, when she proclaims the gospel at the Mass. It's Jesus Christ himself speaking to us. So what are some of the sacramental signs that say that? Well, for example, we sing a little pri- song. And the priest does it. Okay, the priest does yeah. it. The minister, uh, a lay person doesn't do it. The priest or the deacon does it. We stand during the gospel, whereas we sit during the other reading. Sign, uh, standing is a sign of attention and respect. Uh, we sing a little song welcoming Jesus, you know, the gospel acclamation. There's incense and candles. We proclaim from a special book that sets this reading apart from the others. There's a special greeting and a special conclusion. Uh, the, the, the priest or the deacon kisses the book. Uh, all of these things are sacramental ways that signify to anybody who's attentive and knows how to hear or you know, uh, uh, see these things that there's something unique here going on. And what is unique is that it's Jesus himself who's doing the proclamation. And again, this is a reason to think about what the church asks in terms of the fullness of liturgical expression. Because... Some people might say, oh, well, you go to that high church and they have incense and they carry candles around and they have altar servers and the gospel procession. You know, you're just high church people. Well, no, if you really want to signify and indicate what's really happening, then you do that. I mean, just taking the old three ring binder out and uh, having the scriptures read from that and then throwing them in the garbage when you're done because that day is over. That's not really respect to the Christ who has become present in these words. And it's not evident to the people in the pews that that's what's going on. You might even notice that at an Episcopal liturgy, from the book of the Gospels, the, the bishop will bless the people with the book of the Gospels. A priest won't do that, or, or the bishop doesn't do it with the lectionary, but with the bishop, with the book of the Gospels, after the Gospel reading, will actually give a benediction with the book of the Gospels in a very, same, in a very similar way 
similar way that he does with the Blessed Sacrament and Demonstrance, because this book of the Gospels just proclaims signifies the eternal word of the Trinity. And the presence of Christ among right. his people. And sometimes, you know, that might make people a little nervous. They say, well, you know, the Eucharist is the real presence, true substantial physical presence, sacramentally presented of Christ. Scripture, well, that's just a book, or that's just this record of what happened a long time ago, but that's not really how the church teaches it. There's a hierarchy. The word proclaimed in the scriptures, certainly in one sense lower than the Eucharist, but they have this very important relationship. And the church uh, says they are honored with the same, um, uh, let's see, the church has honored the word of God and the Eucharist mystery with the same reverence, although not with the same worship which is very interesting. You can worship the Eucharist, but you can't worship the scriptures, even though you can revere them both at the same level. That, that brings up a point that I think is pretty important, and this is something I, I learned uh, filming that uh, video series that we have, Elements of the Catholic Mass, which are, are free videos on the Mass you can go to. But um, Father Douglas Martis was talking about the word word and how after the proclamation of the gospel, you say, you know, the word of the Lord, but sometimes we can be confused about that in the vernacular in English. We don't have a separate word that means a written word or a spoken word. To us, it's just word. And sometimes you see somebody after the gospel, they raise the book up and they say the word of the Lord. But when you're proclaiming from the ambo, it's the spoken word. Is that correct? Not the written word? Well, it is. It's uh, what is... St. Paul, I think, or somebody says that the Word of God is living and effective. It's on our lips and it's in our hearts and it animates us. Uh, it's something that uh, is alive and in the air and in our ears and in our, in our body. It's not something necessarily uh, or primarily written. That's why some people think, you know, if at all possible, that... Um, you shouldn't follow along in your missalette or your hand missile or something like Whoa, that. Whoa, really? <laughs> this is, yeah, opinions differ on this. Yeah, it sounds uh, like they would. That yeah. seems like something people would get upset but about. But it helps to signify that the, this word that is, it's a proclaimed word, it's a living word, it's an animated word, and it's not, uh, uh, not simply a red word. Now, others will say, you should do whatever you could do to encounter the word, and if you need uh, assistance in in uh, understanding that you should follow along. But if, I, case, if I follow yeah. along, I'm able to process a lot better. I'm able to understand and I pay attention more rather than yeah. I might space well, out. That I, that's probably what you should do then because yeah. the, the end game is to encounter but the But now the I'm truth second guessing that because I entered, because of what you said. Well, it makes what, sense. What, what you should try next time is to be more attentive without reading. <laughs> that's see, not going to happen. See if that can, <laughs> that, that can work. I'll try. I'll definitely try. But that's something I never heard. Wow. And if you take it even a step higher, you know, the word, the, Christ is the word of the Father. So you have this notion that the Father kind of thought of himself, you know, who am I, assessed himself, and then spoke. When he speaks, things um, become real. So he says, let there be light, and there's light. And so the word is the, the Father's kind of self-conception then made into the second person of the Trinity. And so you can also say, when you say the word of the Lord, you're saying Jesus is now present among you and effective. This ordering principle of all things that comes from the mind of the Father is now ordering you according to the Father's will. And that's, that's a very important thing. I think it's in the Book of Blessings in its introduction. It talks about Jesus being, in a certain way, literally the benediction. He's the benedictio. He is the word, and he's the best word, the bene. Uh, and so to, to give a benediction uh, is literally to say a good word. And the highest example of this is the either the Father's uh, reflection of himself, which is the good word, the best word, or his let there be. His speaking is a benediction that brings reality into being. And so when the bishop blesses, gives the benediction, it's, it's a 
further extension of the good word whom we've just heard in from the ambo uh, in the proclamation of the gospel because when god speaks it's made so it's not just i wish it were like this but no if god's god's will is active and creative and so if he wills something it it occurs and that's that's it so if his word is going around and that's this living and effective language his word becomes part of our daily experience and it makes us more like him if that happened every time I spoke, I think this world would be a far different place. Well, I remember that episode of The Simpsons when Homer got everything he prayed for in the bacon truck and, oh, the, yeah. and the fudge truck mm-hmm. collided on the highway. <laughs> <laughs> it started the whole trend of chocolate-covered oh, bacon. Oh, man. Um, but so the Ambo, then, is this kind of architectural rendition of all this high theology we were just talking about. So an Ambo should look like it's as, as important as it is. It might be made of stone. It would have a relationship to the altar. It might be made of the same material. You could even you know, carve angels or the book, you know, some reference to the gospel writers. You could have mosaic. Everything that you might do to an altar to show that it's a heavenly table um, could be the kind of this heavenly lectern or this heavenly podium from which the table of the word, which is the table of the word and the word is proclaimed. So to see these little spindly things that people make in new churches this day, oftentimes it's not really adequate to the sacramental meaning of the mystagogical catechesis that it's supposed to do. And Chris, you're the expert on mystagogical catechesis. Mm-hmm. Mystagogical or mystagogical? Right, with Dennis. Mystagogical catechesis. So we'll oh, okay. Mystagogical this time. Yeah. Mystagogy. <laughs> you couldn't even do it on the spot. Mystagogy means being led into the mystery from those things which you can sense, uh, you can see or hear or taste or touch or smell, into that reality which you cannot. Uh, and an ambo, likewise, has this uh, mystagogical uh, dimension to it that when you see the ambo, when you hear the word proclaimed from the ambo, when you smell the incense that's used at the proclamation of the gospel, all of these sensate realities are to draw you into the deeper reality, which the ultimate, we would, what they say in the sacramental theology class, the res sacramenti, the res tantum, the reality of everything is the logos who is uh, behind that. And we're recording in Wisconsin today, of course. And, oh yeah, how did we not even mention that? I know, we're at the, uh, the great Johnson Karsten's family compound here. Yeah, you will never find it. It doesn't, the address doesn't, oh no, you have an address. Where we were last night does yeah, not have Catholic it. Catholic Shangri-La up here. Lots yeah. of children and smart people <laughs> drinking and eating and enjoying life. Drinking water. Living a Catholic life. But, you know, when I give talks in parishes, often I'll show a slide of a guy with a, you know, foam cheese on his head and I'll say, what do you know about this guy? And they oh, he's a Green Bay fan. Well, that's a kind of being led to the mysteries, you know, and of course, Wisconsin being a Green Bay fan has mystical importance, but... There's a cheese on the guy's head. You know he's a, mist- uh, he's a Green Bay fan. And so that external points to the invisible internal reality. That's this fundamental sacramental reality that we have. Take it at the highest level. You know How important is scripture? Well, we're going to sing the word of the Lord, and we're going to have candles and incense and processions, and it's going to be a- all the things that Chris said. And then the ambo itself is going to further magnify that so that these external things lead you to the mysteries, to the sacramental reality that's, that's behind it. It's very important stuff. Yeah, the Liturgy of the Word, I saw a diagram once, because the Mass is kind of broken down, the Liturgy of the Word and Liturgy of the Eucharist, and those two parts are, you know, peaks, like if you're looking at a little graph chart, you know, they're the the peaks, and what you were saying before was that it's not not as important or as... um, as uh, I guess we, we don't treat it the same way as we would treat the the liturgy of the Eucharist, but it's it's very important. It's the it's the it's the word of God. Right. And the logic is: How would we know the Eucharist if we hadn't heard Scripture? So, 
Christ inaugurated the Eucharist, but then people had to go tell people, and they led other people to come into this fullness. So in one sense, one leads to the other, but they're both sort of critically important to yeah. reinforce each other. Yeah, a common uh, biblical type for this is the disciples on the road to Emmaus, whom oh, Jesus love appears it. to. That was the gospel at my wedding. Was it? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Well chosen. Thank you. And so Jesus appears to uh, the two disciples on the road, and he, what does he do? Is basically sort of a, a, a liturgy of the word. He explains the scriptures, what Moses and the prophets had said mm-hmm. uh, concerning uh, the Messiah. And they describe later, our hearts were burning within them. This is kind of the liturgy of the road leading to the place where they're going to stop, and at which point they celebrate the breaking of the bread, the Eucharist. Uh, and so this, uh, these two elements, the liturgy of the word leading to the Eucharist is, again, it, it takes place in the celebration yeah, of that's, Mass. Yeah, that's often cited as one of the first Masses, and uh, one of, like it's indicative of how we see Mass today, because it's how Christ himself revealed this process. But first uh, he spoke to them in right. words, and then he led them to those mysteries. And so, you know, we talked at the very beginning about the pulpit versus the ambo, um, but a pulpit was the place where they would come out and preach. The scriptures were read silently at the at the altar. And so as people realized all this stuff we're talking about in the 20th century, that the, the reading of the scriptures, proclamation of the scriptures was so important, then the ambo as an extension of that became rediscovered as well. And so they started to grow. It's not a word you would have heard anybody say in 1850 or 1890. That people didn't even, that was a thing they had used a thousand years ago. But with this rediscovery of the importance of the proclamation of scripture, so comes this rediscovery of the AMBO. Yeah, and I was I was actually at this church uh, about a month ago, and uh, you were talking about permanent structure. It should, you know, be indicative of that. But it wasn't a permanent structure. It was kind of wobbly, and the, the priest fell over it, and the AMBO broke, and... It was bad. They had to call the ambulance. I've been waiting 23 oh minutes to say that joke. I've, been, I've just been waiting. Can we edit that part out? No, that you one stays for sure. Well, you know, not only is a non-fixed ambo possibly dangerous, I mean, the church asked that it be fixed because the word of right, God proclaimed it. amongst people <laughs> can't just be carried away. The God's presence, Christ's presence in the readings is a permanent reality in our world. And so it says it should be prominent, noble, and fixed. The church gives actually very little description of what an ambo ought to look like, but those are the three things, noble, um, fixed, and uh, in a prominent place. Are those the same um, guidelines for the altar, too? I think I remember you saying it should be fixed as well. Right. The altar should be fixed because Christ's presence among his people is eternal. It's not going anywhere, Uh, but there are a lot more descriptions of what an altar ought to be. It's a more complex thing, theologically, but the ambo uh, is an extension of that. And there are actually a couple of mystical meanings of the the ambo. Uh, One is the holy mountain. A part partly grows from that notion of the angel proclaiming the resurrection of Christ to Mary Magdalene and the women from this high spot. Um, but also, it's sometimes compared to the stone that's been rolled away that we were just talking about. So the angel climbed up that. So some ambos would typically be raised up, not just yeah, because... Yeah, I've seen that. They have a little staircase going mm-hmm. up to it. Okay. Yeah, not just because it's easier to see people from up there and be heard, although it is that. But some of the early Christian ambos will have two sets of stairs, and it actually makes a triangular shape, kind of like a little mountain. And they climb up the mountain or climb up onto this uh, holy stone. And I've seen it in just one place that sometimes ambos are raised up high, and they're up on columns so that there's empty space under there. You could actually crawl around under there. Whoa, that's it's like a treehouse. Yes, except under it is empty. So that's compared to the empty tomb. So if the angel's up on a rock, then what's under that rock will the empty tomb. What did the angel tell the women? Jesus is is alive he's he's been risen go in the tomb 
and see for yourselves and then go tell everybody. So if the proclamation of scripture is Jesus is alive, the tomb is empty, now go tell everyone you know. So the Ambo kind of encapsulates wow. all of that in and the, one the place. The priest then kind of takes the place of that first angel yep. uh, who means messenger. So the good message or the good messenger is evangelization. And so the priest who is uh, reading the gospel and uh, explaining it is this uh, uh, incarnation of that first angel telling uh, those in the in the assembly to go out and proclaim the good news of Christ's resurrection. Mm-hmm. Excellent. I've, I've uh, actually, Dennis, I have one quick question for you. I, I could be misremembering this, but I think I've seen in some churches there are two, you know, Ambo-like uh, fixtures in the church, both with staircases. What's Does that have any meaning? Yeah, well, you know, in the... Um older form of the right, they had the, what they call the epistle side of the gospel and the gospel side. So they would have the epistle read from the, what the person in the pew would see on the right, and then the altar server would pick it up and carry it over to the gospel side, which would be the left. And so in some older churches where they did proclaim scripture from an ambo, they would have one for the epistle and one for the gospel. And so you'll see one on the right and the left. But although it's not specifically legislated now, the church kind of has implied in its documents that one ambo makes sense because all scripture is proclaimed yeah, from it. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask. Okay. So there are places where there are two, and they often they're raised up quite high, and it's sort of a glorious thing to see. Uh, but typically now in new churches, there'll only be one. Or older churches that have two will use one as kind of the lectern. And that's one what I was just, the yeah, the, yeah. I'll see the, the, the choir member will come and, you know, uh, sing from there or something like that. Okay, excellent. Right, but at the end of the day, it's like every other thing in, this, in the liturgy. The external signs make clear to us what the invisible realities are. And a spindly little wooden ambo stand doesn't do the job. A beautifully developed and uh, glorified version of that is a much better sign of the heavenly realities breaking into our world. Awesome. Now, I do want to mention real quickly um, the Adoramus Bulletin. Dennis, you wrote an article about the ambo. Uh, Chris, when is that going to come out if people want to read that? Yeah, it's the uh, November issue, so it, it'll be in print uh, middle of uh, November, but it's uh, it will be available probably sooner than that uh, at otteramus.org. Okay. Have a look at it there. Yeah, and, and this podcast, I think it's fair to say, kind of came out of uh, all the research, Dennis, that you've been doing for that, and we thought, oh, this would be a good, good, a good topic to dive into. So if you want to read more um, about that, you can look for that at the Otteramus Bulletin website. Uh, so I think it's time for an email question, right? Oh, yeah. All right, let's do it. Hey, Liturgy Guy listeners, this is your host, Jesse Weiler. And before we get into this week's email question, I wanted to quickly remind you about our Young Adult Liturgy Conference coming up in April 2017. If you're a young adult and you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, both Dennis and Chris will be speaking at this Young Adult Liturgy Conference in Chicago. So to learn more about that, go to www.betransfigured.com. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, not just ritual anthropology, but really discovering the mystery of prayer and at the same time the depth of the tradition, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Mail call! Mail call! Oh, Moses. 
Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, this week's question comes from Anonymous. Anonymous wants to know, what do you do if you go to Mass on Sunday and the priest doesn't show up because he's sick or unavailable? This is a good question, and actually a question that is asked more frequently than you might think. Yeah, so you uh, you go to Mass, you're all together, you're getting, uh, everybody's getting assembled, and word comes that a father has been has taken ill and he's going to the hospital or the snowstorm has pre- prevented him from uh, making it to mass. Uh, what, what should you do? The uh, document that would speak to this, and I think it's a 1988 document called the directory for Sunday celebrations in the absence uh, of a priest it says that whenever and wherever mass cannot be celebrated on Sunday, the first thing to consider or is to be ascertained is whether the faithful can go to a church in a place nearby to participate there in the Eucharistic mystery. So the first option is, is you're assembled, Father can't make it, you should go somewhere else. Yeah, try if, somewhere else. If, yeah, so that that is number one. Let's say the Mass you are attending is the 6 o'clock Mass at uh, 6 p.m. Mass, mm-hmm. and it's the last Mass in town. There isn't another one left. You know, what uh, should, should you do? Or, or you're traveling the next day, and you, it's a Saturday vigil or something. Whatever yeah, allows you to not go. Well, possibly. I mean, you know, a certain uh, at a certain point, you need to decide if you can go the next morning. And right. This will take. This will take. It might be inconvenient, but you know, father who's uh, slid into the ditch in a snowstorm or is in the hospital now is also inconvenienced. I mean, this is what this is what we're called to do. But if you if you cannot reasonably, if you cannot make it to another mass, then. Um, we should say one that according to 1248, this is Canon 1248, a person who assists at Mass celebrated anywhere in a Catholic rite, either on the feast day itself or the evening of the preceding day, satisfies the obligation of participating in the Mass. If you cannot make it to a Mass, you do not have an obligation to do so. I mean, the Church mm-hmm. doesn't ask the impossible of us. If there's no option to go to Mass, then the, the, the obligation for you to attend is uh, lifted. So, should you do nothing? Well, what is recommended. Um, in fact, this is the very next canon. It says, if participation in the Eucharistic celebration becomes impossible because of the absence of the priest or for another grave cause, it is strongly recommended to the faithful or that the faithful take part in the liturgy of the word uh, if such a liturgy is celebrated in the parish church um, or they devote themselves to prayer for a suitable time alone as a family or as the occasion permits in a group of families. So what uh, in many places, especially in the dioceses of the United States of America, the USCCB has developed, and this has been approved by uh, the Holy See, what they call Sunday celebrations in the absence of a priest, where it's led by a deacon or a trained uh, uh, lay person, and it consists in the Sunday readings. Um, there may or may not be the distribution of Holy Communion. Uh, it can or cannot uh, include parts of the liturgy of the word. So this is one. This is one of the ways that uh, at least the U.S. bishops have sought to uh, fulfill this uh, part two of Canon twelve forty eight. But again, it, it's not as if the Sunday celebration in the absence of the priest fulfills your obligation. It doesn't. That's not mass. Uh, but it is a, a worthy thing to do if uh, Father's unavailable to come. And is that ruling um, or guide from the USCCP, U, sorry, USCCB, um, in regards to in some parts of the country, you have one priest, you know, at five different parishes, and you may not be able to get a priest in your parish if you're in a remote area. Right. It, 
generally there's two ways that it is envisioned this book could be used. One is kind of intentionally. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, we plan on, you know, on every third Sunday, there will not be a priesthood. We know that right now. Right. And this is what will take place. But again, this presumes that the people at that location cannot uh, find another priest or go anywhere else. And the second occasion is the one really we've been discussing here, you know, kind of, uh, in case of emergency, br break glass and get the, the mm -hmm. Sunday celebrations book out and use it then. <laughs> So. And I guess at some level, there's a, a personal sense of conscience. You know, if your parish, the nearest parish is four hours away, other than yours, do you drive four hours in order to fill, fill your obligation, or is that an undue burden? I guess you have to talk to your director or your confessor and say, yeah. You know, I know pastors think about it. Well, what if it's three hours? What if it's two hours? One hour? Half hour? 15 minutes? At what point... Um, is it unreasonable to expect that the faithful should go to another church? Or if the soccer team is depending on your kid, and if you mm -hmm. go four hours away, nice. what happens? It's in the mix, too. Mm -hmm. All right, well, I think that answers the question. Uh, if you want to ask the Liturgy Guys a question, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition.